read Romans uh, 9, 14 to 18. So uh, I think we got a couple of verses off there, but I'm going to read that real quick here. Uh, it's not any warmer or fuzzier, but uh, Paul writes, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, and this is why I've chosen this text, for this is the very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. That's a tough text to listen to. You know, it's football season, college football season, and Tim Tebow became famous. Uh, he was the quarterback for the University of Florida. He won the Heisman Trophy, and uh, now he's playing baseball. But before that, he was a really good college football player. In fact, they've got a statue of him, I think, at uh, the University of Florida. And he, on his, uh, under his uh, eyes, they always had these little patches to help protect from the sun, the to help with reflection. And he would often write a scripture like Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And all the years that Tim Tebow was playing football, he never put Romans 9, verse 18 on his eye patch. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. That is a tough text to hear and yet it's in the, the Bible. We're forced to wrestle with it. But when you take 918 out of its proper context, you, it can sound as if God is some type of, well, some type of bully who, who is arbitrary in hardening the hearts of some and giving mercy to others. What does Paul mean exactly in using Pharaoh as an example to make his point in Romans 9? Well, to see what Paul is talking about exactly, we need to go back to Exodus. So I would encourage you to turn in your Red Pew Bibles to Exodus chapter 7. Beginning with verse 1, Exodus chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as we pray. God, we thank you so much that you inspired the prophets and the apostles to put pen to parchment, that we might have your written word today. Oh God, we pray that as we read your word this morning, that you might again speak to us, that we might hear from you, that our hearts might be opened and transformed at the reading and preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 7, beginning with verse 1, listen to the word of the Lord. Exodus 7, verse 1. Sorry. (laughs) Exodus. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by the greatest acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke. 
to Pharaoh. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God says to Moses, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Why does God feel it is necessary to harden Pharaoh's heart? I mean, doesn't God know that given enough time with enough plagues, Pharaoh in his own free will will eventually let the people of Israel go? I mean, you can only handle so many plagues. And if you continue to read the story from Exodus 7, 8 to, verse, to chapter 12, verse 32 in Exodus, you'll see that there are 10 plagues that God brings to Egypt so that Pharaoh will eventually let his people go. It begins, of course, with the, the plague of turning uh, the water into blood at the Nile River. Then God sends a plague of frogs. Then God sends a plague of gnats. Then God sends a plague of flies. Then God kills the livestock of the Egyptians, but not the Israelites. Then God sends a plague of boils on the Egyptians, not the Israelites. Then God sends destructive hail that ruins and destroys all of Egypt's crops, but not the Israelites. Then God sends a plague of locusts to eat any remaining plant that may have survived the hail, Then God sends a plague of darkness over the land of Egypt. And finally, finally, God kills the firstborn of the Egyptians. During these various plagues, as you read through chapter 7 to chapter 12, you can see that sometimes it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes it says that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And sometimes it says that, well, that Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. Where does all this hardening of the heart begin exactly? Well, in Exodus chapter 7, we read about the first plague that God does through Moses when God turns the water of the Nile River into blood. Specifically, in Exodus chapter 7, verse 22, and you may just want to keep your Red Pew Bibles open to Exodus chapter 7. In in chapter 7, verse 22, it says, But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. They were able to turn the water into blood. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. It doesn't say how his heart initially became hardened in chapter 7 specifically. It just says he remained hardened. Did God harden Pharaoh's heart first, or did Pharaoh harden his own heart first? After turning the water in Egypt to blood, God fills the land with frogs. Pharaoh pleads with Moses to take the frogs away. It was just overwhelming to the people of Egypt. And after Moses prays for the frogs to go, then in Exodus chapter 8, verse 15, we read, But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he, Pharaoh, hardened his heart. It would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 15, it's very clear that Pharaoh hardens his own heart after the plague of frogs. Pharaoh, in his own free will, hardens his heart against the Israelites. But then after the plague of frogs, God fills Egypt with gnats. And in Exodus chapter 8, 19, we read, Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Did Pharaoh harden his own heart in that text, or did God harden Pharaoh's heart at that particular moment? We don't know for sure, but we know this. Even the magicians can see that the gnats and the plague of the gnats is caused by the 
finger of God. Not just the hand of God, but just the, the finger of God. God's little finger is able to bring incredible plagues that even the magicians with all their magic tricks can realize this is beyond anything we've ever seen. This is the hand, the finger of Yahweh. In fact, as you continue to read about these plagues, it, it seems that it comes clear that everyone in Egypt recognizes that these plagues are caused by Yahweh, the, the God of Israel. And people are actually pleading uh, with Pharaoh, let the people of Israel go, but Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He will not let the people go. After the plague of the gnats, God fills Egypt with flies. Then after the plague of flies, God kills the livestock of Egypt. And then God brings a plague of boils on the people of Israel. And we read in Exodus chapter 9, verse 12, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. From Exodus 7 to 12, sometimes it says God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And sometimes his heart simply remains hardened. Where did all this hardening of the heart begin exactly? Well, way back in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21 While God is speaking to Moses from a burning bush that does not burn, but yet a flame is going, it's not consumed, God calls, as you remember, Moses to go to Pharaoh to tell Pharaoh that God, the God of the Israelites, Yahweh, has told, let my people go. And in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. God tells Moses from the very beginning of his call that his plan is to harden Pharaoh's heart. He is not going to let the people go. Yes, you should speak to Pharaoh, but I, God, am going to harden Pharaoh's heart. So why does God harden Pharaoh's heart exactly? If the hardening begins with God, why does God harden Pharaoh's heart at the very beginning? I believe the answer is actually found in verse 5 of our text in Exodus 7. For God in verse 5 says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. By hardening Pharaoh's heart, God is able to bring out one plague after another so that everyone in Egypt can see very clearly that this is by the finger of God, Yahweh, who is almighty, all-powerful. There is no God like the God of the Israelites. Just the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and the powerful plagues that God does demonstrates God's great power. It demonstrates God's sovereignty. Now, as Presbyterians, we love to talk about God's sovereignty. Sovereignty is is simply an adjective that means supreme power or authority. As Presbyterians, we emphasize the sovereignty of God because the fact is that when things don't go our way, we want to know, we want to believe, we want to understand that our God is sovereign. He is almighty, all-powerful, and our God is still in control. A few years ago, my daughter Elizabeth had a serious head injury. She was rushed to the hospital And they weren't sure whether or not there was going to be any permanent brain damage because she was having a hard time formulating sentences. I found comfort in knowing that our God is sovereign. Our God is still in control. He's not going to leave my daughter Elizabeth alone. He will be with her and he will be with us. Yes, our God is sovereign. 
Not far from creation, but very much involved in the life of our world today. When my wife was hospitalized uh, several years ago uh, because of a, a miscarriage, and I had a great anxiety and worry about my, my wife's health. It was an ectopic pregnancy. She was actually at risk of, of losing her own life if it were to rupture. And so we were all praying and, and worried and concerned. But I found comfort in knowing that our God is sovereign. Our God is still in control. He was not going to abandon me or my family. Yes, we need to know that our God is sovereign. He is in control. When I was 22 years old, even more years ago, many, many years ago, when I was 22 years old and and my college girlfriend broke up with me, I thought the world had come to an end. I don't know what I was going to do. This was the one I thought I was going to marry, and I was devastated, but I, but I knew what God's word said. I knew that our God is sovereign. He's in control, and he has a plan, and it's a plan to prosper us, not to harm us. It's a plan to give us a hope and a future, and so I, I turned to God's sovereignty, to God's plan to, to give me comfort and peace, and in God's grace and provision and plan, I met my wife, Sarah, just a year later, and she's a much better fit for me than my college girlfriend ever was. Thanks be to God for his plan, amen? amen? Yes, our God is sovereign. He's in control. He has a plan. And that gives us peace. Peace to know that God does not abdicate control of his creation. He has it far away. The deists believe that God has created the world and like a clock he's wound it up and now he's far removed from his creation. No, the Bible teaches us clearly that our God is sovereign. He is very much in control, moving in and through our world today. As human beings who live in a fallen and broken world, we need to know that God is sovereign, that God is in control. When the layoff comes, or the marriage ends, or the loved one dies, we need to know that our God is sovereign. Our God is is in control. He will never leave us nor forsake us. We need to know that our God is with us. We know that God is able to take and work through all of these things. He's capable of working all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, as we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. But still, if we're honest with ourselves, many of us struggle today when we read about God hardening the heart of someone, even someone like Pharaoh. Now, very few of us like Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a very cruel, mean leader. He was abusive to the Israelites. He would not let the people go. It seems like he brought this upon himself. Yet it makes us anxious to think that God would harden Pharaoh's heart, not because we like Pharaoh, but more we're concerned that maybe God might harden our heart someday. Or God might harden the heart of someone we love. Yes, we find the hardening of Pharaoh's heart to be unsettling because we fearfully wonder if if God might decide to harden our heart or, or maybe the heart of someone we love so that ultimately, like Pharaoh, they or us will experience God's wrath rather than God's deliverance like the people of Israel did. It's unsettling for us to think that, that God and his sovereign power would overpower someone's free will and, and, and harden their hearts and make them an example to others. Of course, that's where our human logic tends to break down from a biblical perspective. You see, it's true that in Exodus 4, God tells Moses that he he plans to harden Pharaoh's heart so that when Moses speaks to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's not going to have ears to hear. But the hardening of of Pharaoh's heart was really about God giving Pharaoh over to his own sinful desires. 
When God hardens Pharaoh's heart, God is simply giving Pharaoh up to his own sinful desires. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 25, when he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things." Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Through his creation, God has made himself known to, to all of humanity from the very beginning. It's clear that there is a God who would create the heavens and the earth. In fact, you, but, but, but Pharaoh in his hardness of heart and his own sinful desires wants the people of Israel to destroy, to be destroyed. And so he doesn't have ears to hear what God has to say. In fact, if you remember when, when Moses and Aaron tell Pharaoh that Yahweh, the God of Israel, says, let my people go, how does Pharaoh respond? He says, who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? God hardens Pharaoh's heart because Pharaoh was already sinfully hard-hearted towards the people of Israel. Pharaoh was already very cruel. God is simply giving Pharaoh over to his own sinful desires when he hardens Pharaoh's heart. For God never makes us sin. We sin when out of our own sinful desires make choices that are against God's will. James, the brother of Jesus, explains this very clearly in his epistle. James chapter 1, verse 13 to 15 James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It was Pharaoh's own desires that led God to harden his heart. I love the way New Testament scholar Leon Morris explains Romans 9 when the Apostle Paul speaks of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Dr. Morris writes, Neither here nor anywhere else is God said to harden anyone who had not first hardened himself. In his own sinfulness, Pharaoh's heart was already hardened towards the Israelites before God ever decides to send Moses, before God ever decides he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. When God hardens someone's heart, He's simply giving them over to their own sinful desires. In fact, if you continue to read all of Romans 9 through 11, you'll see that Paul believes that the hardening of the Jews towards Jesus is simply temporal. It's not permanent. It's only partial. The hardening of their hearts towards Jesus is partial and temporal because, well, one day after the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, their eyes will be opened and all of Israel will be saved. They will understand that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Messiah, the Savior, the great I Am, the Lord of us all, as Paul believes that one day Israel's hard-heartedness will be softened, their eyes will be opened. 
Paul had experienced this softening of his heart by God himself. You may remember that before he was known as the Apostle Paul, he went by his Jewish name, Saul, and Saul was on the road to Damascus not to become a Christian, but to persecute the Christians, to persecute the earliest followers of Jesus. The last thing he was looking to do was to become a follower of Jesus. But while he was on the road to Damascus, God blinded Saul. And the risen Jesus appeared to Saul and spoke to him from heaven and and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And Saul's life was forever changed as God broke through Saul's hard heart and took his heart of stone and gave him a heart of flesh that might give him eyes to see and ears to hear who Jesus really is. It's the hardening of someone's heart isn't permanent necessarily we can see that in Paul's life Paul who who was Saul becomes one of the greatest church planters and missionaries the world has ever known he becomes the man who's responsible for writing much of the New Testament today yes we can see from the New Testament that the hardening of heart isn't necessarily permanent in fact we can look at the life of the apostle Paul and see that even if we have a hard heart to the truth of God's word God can still make himself known to us and soften our hearts so that we become an instrument of his grace. What is truly remarkable is not that God has the power to harden hearts, but rather in his sovereign will and mercy, he chooses to soften the hearts of so many. You see, in Romans chapter three, God make, uh, Paul makes the point very clearly that we're all sinners who fall short of God's glory, that all of us, uh, through our sin, have begun to harden our hearts to the things of God. But God in his grace and mercy doesn't abandon us in our sin. No, he sends his one and only son, Jesus, here to this earth to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to live in perfect obedience to our heavenly father so that he might be the perfect sacrifice for our sins with his death on a cross. And then on the third day, conquer sin and death on our behalf with his resurrection on that third day so that we might have the assurance of eternal life, so that we might have the gift of a new life and become a new creation if we simply believe in him and respond to God's grace. But as you continue to read Romans, you'll see that even faith is ultimately a gift from God. It's the Holy Spirit working in our lives that helps open our eyes to who Jesus really is. What is truly remarkable is not that God has the sovereign power to to harden hearts. Then in his sovereign will, he chooses to make himself known to us. God's sovereignty reveals God's grace. God's power reveals reveals God's unmerited favor. For we don't deserve anything God has done for us, but in his power and grace, he makes himself known to us. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verse nine, that if we confess with our lips Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We will have the assurance of eternal life. We'll have the gift of a new life if we simply come to him in faith. And it's God who initiates that relationship. Yes, God's sovereignty reveals his grace and mercy. In 1991, uh, my favorite basketball player ever, uh, David Robinson, the Hall of Fame center for the San Antonio Spurs, visited, uh, he visited Gates Elementary, specifically the fifth grade of Gates Elementary. 94 students uh, at the time were in the fifth grade. He told all 94 students that if you'll graduate from high school, I will give you scholarship money so that you can go to college. David Robinson was true to that promise. And in 1998, David Robinson was there when these 
students. Only 50 of them graduated, but still 50 of them graduated from high school. And he, he was there with scholarship checks to give to each student who graduated, who had been in that fifth grade class of Gates Elementary. And the news applauded David Robinson's generosity and his mercy. And no one complained that, well, why didn't David Robinson give money to every graduate that year? No, they saw the, the beauty of David's act of mercy. As the people of God, we must always give thanks to God for his mercy that would save a wretch like us. That even though we had a hard heart, God in his sovereignty has begun to chisel away at our hearts so that our hearts are softened to who Jesus really is. And if our conversion, if, if our faith in Christ is really a work of the Holy Spirit, then, then we need to pray for those we know who do not yet know Jesus. We need to pray for those who are far from God. We need to pray that God would begin to knock on the door of their heart. We need to pray that God would soften their hearts so they might be receptive to the good news of God's love. Yes, we need to pray that God might use us to be an instrument of his grace, pointing them to the sovereignty of God, that God in his sovereignty has chosen to make himself known to us through his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. He has chosen to save us if we will simply respond to his grace and say yes to Jesus. May we take the time we need each and every day to pray for those who are far from God. Let's pray. Oh God, in all humility, we give you thanks for your sovereignty. We give you thanks for your power. And in your power, you've demonstrated your mercy. That while we were all sinners and in many ways hard-hearted towards your ways, Lord, you have softened our hearts. You've made yourself known to us and your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And through your written word, you have spoken to us, Lord. We are so grateful that you are a God who is not far from us, but you're a God who is very near. And Lord, we pray for our loved ones and our coworkers and our neighbors and our classmates who may be far from you today. God, we pray that by your Spirit, you would soften their hearts, that you might use us to be an instrument of your grace to help point them to you. So that like us, they might confess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. And therefore have the assurance of eternal life, the gift of a new life that is only found by faith in you. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your son who is the Christ and all God's people said, amen. At the very last verse of Exodus uh, chapter 7 that we read just a moment ago, you can see that it said that God spoke to Moses when he was 80 and Aaron, his older brother, when he was 83 very clearly that if you're 80 or older, if you're not dead, God's not done with you yet. God wants to do a work in and through you, and Murray's going to talk